classic podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour, and you're welcome to listen along. It's Thursday, and that means I'm reading something offbeat. Sundays are for classics, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. I said last episode that tonight I'd be exploring lawyer hate. It is an ancient hate, whether for solicitors, barristers, counsel, notaries, attorneys at law, law partners, it doesn't matter what they're called. It seems it's always time to hate on the lawyers. The main reasons seem to me to be they cost too much money. They're often leeches feeding off human suffering. I mean, they're not called ambulance chasers. or Some of them aren't called ambulance chasers for nothing. They peddle crackpot science like that silly sudden acceleration syndrome. They defend the scum of the earth. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. They prosecute the innocent. Reuben Carter was falsely tried. And, of course, the eternal complaint, they're a bunch of egomaniacs. Have I got that right, do you think, listeners? Let me know your law war stories, if you have any, at nudiereads at gmail.com. So, the first lawyers the people who practised law in tribunals and advocated in their cases and were paid for it, were the Romans. Before that, it was just orators making some public arguments about such and such in ancient Greece. But it was Roman Emperor Claudius who got rid of the prior ban on lawyers ever getting paid anything for their work. I don't know why that ban existed, perhaps as a way to keep lawyers honest. But Claudius did apply a cap, and it was quite low. In any case, the cap got higher over time, and lots of people became advocates, because, as I noted, it can pay really well. I briefly covered a terrible case in ancient Rome where Cicero acted for poor Sextus Rotius back in episode 14, so do give that a listen. Poor Sexus, he was being fitted up. Some very awful lawyering was happening to him. There were plenty of laws in Rome, from the famed Twelve Tables back in 400 or so BC, to all of the laws being passed by the Roman Senate, and plenty of edicts being passed by the emperors. So lots of laws means lots of people can make a very good living, getting to know all those laws. But the hate. From William Shakespeare play Henry VI, which contains the line, the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers, to the 1939 movie about Jesse James, starring Henry Fonda and Tyrone Power, that contains the lines, Ten years ago, here in Liberty, we didn't have no lawyers, and we got along just fine. Man killed somebody, then somebody killed him, and the marshal shot them all, and that was the end of it. If we are ever to have law and order in the West, the first thing we got to do is take out all the lawyers and shoot them down like dogs. Now that's hate. But why is there so much of it? Well, I think it's a mathematical thing. When it comes to legal cases, 
one side wins and the other side loses. So if you think about that for a minute, the loser hates his own lawyer for losing, as well as the winner's lawyers for winning, right? And maybe the winner likes his own lawyers for winning, but he secretly hates them for being so expensive to get that win. That's what I think. I think lawyer hate is kind of inevitable and kind of exponential, and that's why there's so much of it. But it hasn't stopped lots of people becoming lawyers. And tonight I'm reading some great writing of some effortful courtroom work done by a lawyer who was really hated. You see, he failed. So the losing client hated his lawyer, and so did the winning side. I'm reading The Summation at Trial by lawyer Albert Fink, in defence of mobster Al Capone, who had been charged with tax evasion. The charges were that Capone had been making lots of money out of illegal activity and had not been paying taxes on it. And as we know, that's how the government brought down Al Capone, through the tax code. And his lawyer, Albert Fink, was not able to save him. But he gave it a red-hot go. Let's begin. Is the government really prosecuting this defendant because of an attempt to defraud the United States on income? Or is it just to use that as a means to stow Al Capone away? If the latter, don't you, the jury, be a party to it. You are the only bulwark that can resist oppression in a time of public excitement. Judges cannot do it. The fathers of this country put this power in the hands of the people. Unless you are certain that Al Capone has been proved guilty exactly as charged in each indictment, you cannot find him guilty at all. The evidence, if it is to be considered as making the defendant guilty, must be clear and convincing and unambiguous and must establish guilt beyond adventure or a doubt. The government lawyers have no confidence in the chaff they have presented here. They know this evidence of spent money does not prove gross income. If the figures show Capone made a profit, which they don't, it does not necessarily prove that he had income, for he may have been losing money at the same time. The questions involved, gentlemen of the jury, are first, whether or not there is any evidence, whether in fact there is any evidence at all that even rises to the dignity of hearsay evidence. The second question is the big question, which you are interested in and I am interested in and other generations are interested in. Namely, if there be no evidence of guilt, can a jury be persuaded or conned? into returning a verdict of guilty so that public clamour can be appeased. Don't let yourselves be drawn away from the truth by the claim that Al Capone is a bad man. He may be the worst man who ever lived, but there is not a scintilla of evidence that he willfully attempted to defraud the government out of income tax. It is in evidence, gentlemen, that Capone was released from the Philadelphia prison on 17 March 1930. 
two years after his income tax return for the year 1929 was due. Six days later, on March 23rd, he had retained a lawyer and that lawyer said Capone wanted to pay his taxes. How in the world can you find him guilty of willful intent to defraud the government for 1929? The 1924 indictment alleges income of 123000 But where is the proof? There is not a scintilla of evidence that he made a dollar in 1924. And there is not any evidence that he spent any money in that year either, with the exception of a $5,500 automobile. The records show that the profits of a Cicero gambling house from May to December 1924 were $300,350. I suppose the theory of the government is that because in May 1925, Capone told certain people he owned the place, that somehow he owned it back in 1924. Now, as for 1925, he's supposed to have told Bragg and Morgan and the Reverend Mr Hoover that he owned the place. Let's assume that was true. It proves only that he said that on that day he was the owner of a gambling house. There's no proof that he owned it the next day. As for 1926, what evidence is there that he was in the gambling business in that year? Are they asking you to convict him for that year just because he had a gambling business in 1925? And in 1927, Jimmy Mondi, the manager of the gambling house, went to California about the middle of January. Ralph Capone came in and said Penovich would take charge. Reese, the cashier, saw Al Capone in the telegraph room talking to Jack Guzik. Imagine such evidence. Because Al was talking to Jack, he had an interest in the place? In 1928, well, in that year, Al cashed some Guzik checks in payment of furniture and other purchases. Wouldn't that argue to you that Al borrowed the money from Guzik? instead of getting dividends from the gambling house? And now to 1929, the last year. What evidence have they? Absolutely nothing, except that he lost $110,000 betting on the races, and we introduce that information. All it shows is that he had money. This is the most remarkable proposition I ever heard of. Because I spent $100 or $10,000 this year, that was my net income. Capone is the kind of man who never fails a friend. He was loved by his followers. Open-handed, generous, a man a bookmaker would trust with a $10,000 bet. This does not fit in with the government's picture of a miserly effort to evade income tax. A tin horn or a piker might try to defraud the government but not Alphonse Capone. And that's where we'll leave it tonight. A lawyer named Fink giving his horrible client the best defence he could muster and failing, only to be hated by all. Full disclosure, for my day job, I am a lawyer and I can't imagine... Crafting a defence in the 1920s, during the height of the Depression, bragging about how much money my client was spending. But I guess Fink didn't have a lot of room to move, because Al Capone 
wasn't paying taxes. It's lawyers like Fink who give the rest of us a bad name. I think that lawyers can kind of handle the lawyer hate. The punishment is not too bad. You get to have a very interesting career in an intellectually stimulating profession. And it is possible to do good work and sleep at night. Or at least that's been my experience. Ah well, as Charles Dickens wrote in The Old Curiosity Shop, if there were no bad people, there would be no good lawyers. And I might add, and no bad lawyers either. And on the topic of Dickens, join me next time when I read some unusual Dickens writing. Till then, take care. It's slippery out there. And thanks for listening to Nitty Beans.